Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM Coach, and this is Episode 74. And we talk a lot about ultra-endurance on this podcast. That's basically what it's all about. And not just ultra-running, but ultra-endurance when it comes to triathlon, when it comes to swimming, when it comes to cycling, or a combination of all those. It also comes to adventures and expeditions, whether six, seven, eight day hikes or long trips that require a lot of endurance. All kinds of different athletes that not only listen to this podcast, but that I work with and coach. For example, this next week, one of my athletes will start um, traversing, I should say, the length of Sweden, but not just by foot not just by bike, not just by swimming, but instead he's going to be riding his horse for 60 or, um, yeah, about 40 to 60 kilometers a day and then running the rest of the way for that daily mileage kilometers, looking to be about 20 kilometers a day. And with that, he's going to continue doing this for about a month, the length of Sweden which if you ask me, I think that's pretty cool. Ride 60K a day, run 20K a day. And sure, there's a horse involved and there's a variety of different logistics, but still running four, five, six, seven, 12, 15, 30 days, basically in a row of 20K of what is effectively 12 to 13, maybe some days he'll need to run more, 14 or 15 miles because the horse says might not be able to do that. That's what I'm talking about, adventures, endeavors, expeditions, doing something different. I had another athlete of mine, he just got back from Europe. He's done many Ironmans over the years, but what he did was he did one of the gentleman's sort of um, races. And what I mean by that is he did Paris-Roubaix, And he did the same course. He did 60 miles on cobblestones. I think it was a 119-mile day. Basically, they followed the exact course of this year's Paris-Roubaix. And again, he had the adventure of a lifetime. The difficulties, the winds, the towns, and then those cobblestones. And being able to experience something like that, while sure, the finish line and the times and the accomplishments of racing are valuable, they hit one part of our psyche, ego, competitive streak, passion, potential. But there's another side of our potential and our passions and our curiosity and achieving our best self when we take on these things that are outside of our comfort zone, that are not something we are familiar with. And that's a big part of what I'd like to talk to a lot of my athletes about. And I challenge a lot of them to do. And that is, we train so much within the zones, within numbers, within parameters, right? But that's training. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that, that we call it training and staying in with parameters, because we're trying to have a stimulus, we're trying to recover, we're trying to come back and be even stronger and have a better stimulus. And so that requires specific and specificity days, what they call deliberate training, right? There's been a lot of research in exercise physiology and exercise science about how deliberate specific training is way more effective than just 10,000 hours or just training, 
right? And so a lot of that we do in our everyday training, in our macro cycles, in our mini cycles, in our meso cycles over seasons. But then when we race or when there's adventures or expeditions or things that are just different, but truly when we're racing, I want you all to step out of that, step out of the calculation, out of the parameters, out of the comfort zone, out of the familiarity. We often have spent so much time training and getting familiar with numbers and how we feel relative to those numbers, paces, efforts, and so forth, that getting beyond that to really race, to really let go and just let it all go completely to best effort is unfamiliar to us. And that's the part that I want many of you to still stay connected to. The reason so many athletes have their best races and really powerful, unique experiences in their first ultra distance or triathlon or marathon or half marathon or open water swim is because they had no fear of blowing up, of going into a place that they've never gone before. And sure, while they might have slowed down a bit, or they might have been beyond their fitness in their effort and in their distance, it still felt amazing to do something so uncomfortable and unfamiliar and achieve it. And then when we go to training, we often lose that sensation. So I don't want any of us to lose that fun, that joy, that curiosity, that fear, that, um, that uncomfort, that unease of being there, because that's part of athletics. That's part of a lot of things in our life too. Um, but as I always say, what we see here in this ultra endurance and endurance and athletic world often does translate into so many aspects of our lives. But stay connected, stay willing to be uncomfortable, willing to find out how painful it can be with regards to suffering and training, not painful in with regards to injuring yourself. But there's also days in training, and I get this question every week from some athlete at some point, whether they're veterans with me or brand new. And I, a lot of my training, I would say about 30% of it, 25% of it is on feel and is on just go or best effort or dig in or find out how fast you can go today. A lot of those descriptions. It's because I want you to stay connected. I don't want everything always to be in parameters and within a controlled environment. Again, our body is designed to let go, to blow through zones at times, to really just have fun with this and just test ourselves and push ourselves and expand the boundaries of what we're capable of. And I'm not talking some major ultra endurance event. I'm talking about just a, a 90 minute run that you did in your training, just a fun bike ride or a crazy swim. And so these adventures are what we talk about here. That's what the Weekly Word podcast is about. Being able to take our fitness and our knowledge and our inputs and all this information that this community that so many of you have created by listening and reaching out and also my athletes and this, this swirling knowledge cloud that I like to call it. And we're, we're trying to tackle it all. 
not tackle it that it's difficult, but let's talk about it and find out what else there is. And then, and in that cloud, as it's rotating and as more information is being thrown into this swirling cloud of information and ideas, exchanges and nutrition and hydration and fueling and training and racing and um, strategy and mindset, all that swirling, hopefully you can just dive in, grab a piece and take it out so that you benefit from it too. I have athletes that I've talked to over the last few weeks. They're saying that they don't even listen to the podcast because ah, I already know all of it. And I tell them, I say, you know what, that's fine. And you've been with me for quite a while, but it's a shame because not only could you contribute versus just looking to take, and I'm a big believer in contribution versus competition, big difference between the two versus taking and giving but also because part of that exchange and inputs would be the input of those athletes that have been with me for years what they're what they're observing and how they're feeling or how they've progressed or how they've calmed themselves or how those concerns have gone away or how they've gotten better at zone two not just me but all the athletes that are that have been with me for longer and so please any of you if you feel that there's something you feel I can I should talk about or you want to contribute to I'd love to hear from you and again those adventures and stepping out and doing things different so we started saying by this the, the horse and the run I mean that is just unique very very unique and of course it's for a charitable cause again once again so many of you out there whether it was Hishami on the podcast with regards to the charity water in this case my athlete doing the horse and run the ride and I guess it's called um, ride and run um you know, that's how Western States started. What he is doing exactly is how Western States endurance run began. It was a horse ride slash walk slash hike slash run <laughs> with your horse. And then one year the horse fell ill or wasn't able to do it that the, that the entrant had. And he asked the organizers if he could just do it sans horse, just run it, do it, hike it, run it completed and ever since then that's been the western states ultra endurance run because of that one person who didn't want their adventure taken from them they had prepared and they had the mindset and they had the patience and they had the um, fortitude to see that i will do this i have the cutoff i have the time and i'm just gonna get myself through over and on terrain to the finish line. And very similarly with the athlete in Belgium and so forth, I am doing very similar. Um, in a few weeks, I'm going to join um, an athlete friend of mine, and he's doing a charitable cause of um, swimming across the San Francisco Bay from AT&T Park where the San Francisco Giants play to Oakland, and he used to be a Major League Baseball player. And then he's going to get on his bike in Oakland and get, get this. He's going to ride his bike to Chicago. So he swam across the bay. Then he's going to ride his bike to Chicago over many days, of course. <laughs> but from ballpark to ballpark, stopping at 
Coors Field in Colorado and making it all the way to Chicago and Wrigley Field and Kaminsky Park and so forth. And he's doing it again for a cause, for children's youth activities, his foundation that he created called Let's Play to get kids more active and outside and energetic and participating in sports and fighting obesity and so forth. And so we're going to swim that seven miles across the bay. And am I ready for a seven-mile swim? Can I do it? Yes. But again, it's one of those where it's an adventure. It's been presented. And of course, I want to take part in it. And that's the balance of fitness that I want all of you to have. I know it's not realistic that all of you will have this fitness. But as you grow your fitness, as you grow your confidence, as you grow your capabilities, as you grow your nutrition, as you grow your energy levels, as you grow your training, as you grow your new normal to what your events are, yes, you can. I believe 100% all of us all of us in so many ways are capable of all this. I see it every day around me. And sure, I live in a beautiful location where people are all active and out training and riding and running and swimming on the weekends. I mean, Marin County, California is, is just littered with people exercising all weekend long, right? But if they can do it, and of course, there's different factors in life. I believe so many others can do it as well. And I want to use this podcast as well to help so many and help all of you continue to grow that ability. So that no matter what you hear, and you guys all know, when you hear stuff or when you're in the know of doing these things, more things are presented to you. And then you're more curious on finding out more. And then you hear about more and more events. And hopefully all those events, some you filter out, but some you are inspired by. And you say, that's what I would want to do. Or that's what I'm going to try to do next season. Or that's how I'm going to achieve my next goal my next desired outcome, my next adventure. So that's the Weekly Word Podcast, another long, long intro, but I think you'll enjoy this week's show. Did I just say show? I think I just said show. Man, the podcast, this week's episode. (laughs) Um, I knew a lot of emails this week. I talk a lot about Um, Not a lot about, but I I answer a lot of emails this week because I've been getting a few and I don't want them to to get too backed up and too lodged into other conversations. And I am so appreciative of so many of you that send me emails or updates or Twitter notes or whatever that's all called. (laughs) I don't even know that that well. As you all know, I'm not the most active on social media, but Um, I want to be respectful of your questions and your time. And so I answer a bunch of them this week. I talk a little bit about uh, a little bit more about phantom injuries because I've gotten I've gotten some uh, (laughs) inquiries and questions about them um, and how that happened to me and sort of how I worked my way through it. I also talk about um, open water swimming versus the pool. And um I think that's about it. That's about it this week. Most of it gets covered. Oh, I talk a little bit about self-talk and how we can improve that and how there's a story for us in improving ourselves every day. 
So enjoy this week's episode. Please let me know what you think. If you do have any thoughts, opinions, just share them. Send me a two-second email to chris at aimcoaching.com and I will be happy to respond or add it to the podcast or just hear your input and what you liked and what you don't like. So enjoy this week's episode. Thank you. A lot of people have commented on my phantom injuries that I've talked about on uh, past podcasts regarding the week or two, maybe even three before some bigger A races of mine in the past. And I wanted to follow up with two things on that. One, the key to the phantom injuries comment and description is that it never became an issue once I started racing. As soon as the gun went off, um, as soon as the start of the race began, nothing was there. Uh, And the race unfolded and it was never something that I could point to or say was a limiter in my performance. Um, That would have been um, something different um, in general. When it comes to past races, if I think back that especially in Ironman triathlon, but also in some of the longer um, events of 50 and 100 milers. It's um, actually, I should correct myself. Sorry. In Ironman triathlon, my limiters have never been early in the race. It's never been something in the swim. Rarely, if ever, other than mechanical, has it been anything on the bike. Um, What happens is the accumulation of time, fatigue, and stomach stress, um, whether it's eating incorrectly or doing things, pacing incorrectly, then it displays itself on the run. The other aspect is um, things get um, exponentially more magnified and sensitive when you're six, seven, eight hours into what is close to not threshold, but is definitely a Um, draining, taxing, fatiguing effort that is higher than easy, but not um, as hard as, let's say, threshold. Um, It feels like a zone three tempo race all day long, but but it's really not because of heart rate numbers or wattage numbers, but eventually the fatigue creates that same sensation. And then the other thing about phantom injuries is, in my opinion and I don't have any proof of this or scientific data to back it up, but I think um, subconsciously, and I am a big believer in all the things that our subconscious does, that um, it is the body's way of slowing us down. And while there's times in training that there's signals that we ignore because it's training, Um, we're training through it or we're trying to um, continue on with our um, desired outcome of that macro cycle or mesocycle. But as we approach the race and we become more sensitive and more observant into our taper and the A race coming up, I think it part of the phantom injuries and just my personality of tending to train a lot, um, a lot of volume and not backing off quite enough. Uh, it is I think my body's way subconsciously of slowing me down and stopping and pulling back and giving myself some rest before a race. And again, like I said, it's never served me in a bad way that it's not my my body isn't ready to race come 
race day or the gun going off. So therefore, I see it as a positive. Those phantom injuries, while they not freaked me out, but they were a cause of energy, of concern, of um, energy drain, I should say. Therefore, I don't prefer to have them because you question yourself or you question if it really is an injury. And then, of course, I saw doctors and physical therapists. But on the other hand, in the meantime, I almost have come to expect it and know it's a good sign that my body is in tune with my mind. So I think that will clarify a lot of the follow-up questions I received with that. I have a variety of emails and questions and notifications, um, whether WhatsApp and so forth, that's why I'm not saying emails, that have uh, backed up, um, gotten backlogged with a variety of questions for the podcast. And so I would like to take this week and this time to address a lot of them. Um, The good thing about them is, one, I know we're in tune with what you guys are wondering about or curious about. Two, it allows me to sort of digress into stories and other observations from that. Three, I'm on a pretty big training week, and so the time to really work through some more uh, philosophical uh, questions on the podcast with regards to mindset, with regards to approach of life and balance and so forth is while it's quite vibrant because I spend a lot of time cycling and running and swimming out there, um, I'm making more notes and don't have time to really work through them to share my thoughts or my thinking and um, in in a meaningful and constructive way. Of course, I could just sort of vomit from the mind a little bit, but I'm not sure you guys really want to hear that. So Without much further said, I'm going to dive into a bunch of emails here and notifications and questions and updates. Hi, Chris. Thanks a lot for your response. I'm definitely excited to tackle the next adventure. I'd like to do some more 50Ks and get better at that distance before moving up. On that note, I have a question that I feel would be good for the podcast. I enjoyed the episode today about tapering, but on the flip side of the coin... What are your thoughts on coming out of an event and getting back into training? I observed that one week later, I'm still not 100% recovered from the 50K. Joints in the feet are still achy, and RPE RPE during some lighter workouts is very high. Great question, and um, important to keep in mind. Now, when we come off of an ultra-endurance event, we need to be very careful. Very, very, very careful. Just like tapering is an individual piece where what the body needs to freshen up, to be mentally and physically ready to take on what I call the battle that we take on, um, same thing is coming out of it. Coming out of battle, we need to recover. And everybody recovers differently. Now, okay, that's a pretty boring and vague thing to say. What happens after an ultra-endurance event, whether a 50K, 50-miler, 100-miler, Ironman, and beyond, is physically in our sensations, how we're walking around, how we're sleeping, and so forth. The first few days, of course, are pretty achy and sore, 
And like somebody described it the other day, I feel like an 80-year-old man walking around with small steps and a cane and partially hunched over. Well, yeah, he just did a 120-mile run or some sort and um, with a lot of elevation gain. So I, I get it. It's more the downhills that beat him up. So then once the soreness and that um, overall fatigue, achiness is gone, that, that fog, that haze, and also that hunger for the days after, the amount of food you eat, is gone, we start reconnecting with our abilities to train. It's how we're wired, it's how good we felt in the weeks leading up to the event, and we want to reconnect to feeling good and fit and getting our blood flowing and just what it feels like to consistently train and get some activity going every day. Now the challenge here is just because we feel that way, sitting around, walking around, or at work and such, doesn't mean that once we begin our activities, we don't quickly fizzle out. And what most of you will notice um, when you have some experience with this, after the first 10 to 14 days, you fizzle out pretty quickly, an hour-ish in, maybe even less. There's just right below the surface, there's still a lot of fatigue. There's a lot of achiness, and just once you're going a little bit, all the niggles and things quickly show up. It's right below the surface. And because your day-to-day is the surface, just walking around, sitting around, sleeping, eating, working, and so forth, once you ask your body to do any type of work, it quickly fizzles out. Sort of that wah-wah-wah or that misstart on a car. You're just trying to start it and it just dies. I would say typically after about 10 to 14 days, we can start doing some stuff and it remains okay. But as soon as you ask your body to do anything longer or significant, it's not there yet. That usually lasts from about 10 days to about 20 to 21 days, three weeks after the event, some people four weeks after the event, depends on how much out of their regular training volume and cycle and ability their event was. What that means is if that 50K was, let's say, 50% more than what they typically do, whether in training or on a single day, so their longest prep might have been a 30K or a 25K, well, then that day will be such an outlier that it will take longer to recover from that outlier. If your typical training was 30 to 40K, even a 50K in lead up, and then you came down from that freshened up and raced, then your recovery will probably be quicker because you've already gone through that recovery cycle of coming off of a 50K, of coming off of a 30, 40K. So the body, again, gets better each time it needs to adapt to something. So it takes a while. I have athletes that I would say, in most cases after an Ironman, To ask them to do any type of significant deep down work takes about six weeks. 100 milers, I've, from my own experience as well as from other athletes, that could easily take two to three months 
where they just finally, and they always notice it. I always get athlete comments, and I noticed it while coming off of my 100 milers when I did them, that all of a not all of a sudden, but you, you, you notice, wow, there's my spring and my step. There's my, I feel connected again. I don't feel laborious going through this and achy. And it's not achy from the event still. It's just your body isn't ready to process training and work yet. It can do exercise. It can do the motions for a bit. But asking your body to have adaptations and do a workload that it can then from that stress properly recover. No, that's just not there yet. And that's where it depends. Four to six weeks, I would not ask my body to do much of anything. And for a 50K, you know, running 31 to 32 miles over terrain, depending on how much elevation gain, I mean, that can take four to five weeks. But you'll know, you as the athlete should know and have observed and listened to your body and paid attention and listened to your body well enough to know this training session will be adapted is making me stronger versus this training session is just exercising, moving around, getting the blood flowing, staying connected to running or whatever the activity is. There's a difference. You feel the difference. There, when you're done with a training session and you notice how quickly you recover and how quickly you go snap back to normal, like back at your desk or back at home or back into whatever activity you were doing and you sort of go a few hours later like wow I feel pretty good I'm ready to go again that's adapting that's where you know your body is working well and uploading absorbing the training when it just sort of doesn't feel connected or good or feels off or you're just tired or you're un disengage to do the next session, whether that's the second session of the day, later in the day, or just the next morning, you know that you're not adapting, absorbing. And that's back to our original conversation many podcasts ago, stress plus rest equals training, not just the stress. And so if we're just putting stress on our body and that stress isn't working properly, then we need more rest. And that's just how that equation works. And that time of each can go up and down in order for there to be adaptation for it to be called training. So, I mean, I see that this week for my training, and I, I don't know if this is necessarily always something to share, but uh, because I don't want people rolling their eyes about what I'm doing, um, nor do I really feel the need to share what I'm doing. But as you guys know, I said, talked about it last week, I have a pretty big training week this week, it's going to end up being about, you know, 28 hours of training. Um, I have a rest day today in the middle of a great week where I have it's beautiful weather, I have nothing going on. I mean, I have work going on and stuff, but I could have easily done another day of training. But after talking to after looking at my schedule and putting my week together and putting the long rides and long runs and big swims together and making it all look the way I thought it should look, I ran it by um, another coach, a good friend of mine, and somebody who's helped me in the past just go over my plan. And he quickly said, you might want to put a gap in there. You know, and I resisted early on because 
I was like, I don't have kids this week and I have this beautiful weather. I have all the time in the world. I felt great the last few weeks, just back to back to back to back days. And it doesn't seem to have made that big of a difference. I'm absorbing the load. But upon further review and reflection, it was clear, and I feel it today, that this day off in between these big three-day blocks, I should say, um, is only going to help me. And it feels good today to have an off day from training. It feels good to have put the first three, four-day block behind me and feeling like every single pedal stroke, running stride, swim stroke was effective. It literally moved me forward in my training and fitness. And sure, could I go out and train today? Yes, I feel great. I feel fine. But that means tomorrow is going to feel even better when I restart a new three, four day block and cycle. And, you know, I don't know. I did a, a 16 mile run yesterday after a bike ride. And that 60, after the 16 mile run, I felt fine. I woke up this morning and I, I would have been ready to go. And until I'm two, three hours into that bike ride today, or, you know, an hour into that swim today, I would probably still feel fine. But when the workload would be asked to be done, I probably would have to struggle more, push deeper, deeper, engage more versus a day of rest, absorbing the work, recovery, good food, good sleep will help tomorrow really catapult to another level because that fitness will have settled in and the ability to do the intervals and the work and the steadiness tomorrow will be way more effective. And that absorption of the sponge will be more significant. Today, if I were to train, the sponge would probably be pretty full and I would wipe that counter from with some moisture and I wouldn't be picking up much more moisture. Sure, a little bit, sure, a little bit. But letting that sponge dry out today and, you know, fuel, hydrate, recover, rest, also catch up on work and life so that I don't have to think and worry and stress about that tomorrow so that I can, again, train more effectively all adds to that ability to stress and load the body tomorrow. So tomorrow that sponge will be dry and it will be able to absorb all the moisture on the counter, all the spill and water and whatever it is. And I'm just trying to highlight sort of visually how that works. But the other thing too is that stress with regards to life and work and family and so forth that by rebuilding that today, and in this case, not family for me because I don't have my kids this week, um, but just getting caught up on work and getting caught up with athletes allows me then tomorrow with a clear mind and a clear conscience and a fresh body to do the best possible work. You guys all know what it's like to want to go out and train well and effectively, but we have a zillion things we should be doing. We feel guilty about. There's things rattling around our head that oh, I got to do this and I got to do that and I can't forget to do this when I get back. Oh, I forgot to do that thing. And oh, I really need to pay attention to that and this. And next thing you know, you're doing the workout, you're doing the training, but you're not really doing the training because your mind is buzzing. And again, feeling guilty or overwhelmed 
going into a training session or during a training session makes, makes it way less effective. And you guys all know what that feels like when you feel guilty and overloaded, but you also know what it feels like when you're free of mind and any type of pressures to just go out and enjoy the training and feel great doing it and absorbing it and really um, being grateful, I should probably say, on how good it feels and how happy you are to be out here. It's just a better session. So that was that email. Let me take a look here at the next one. Um, Hi, Chris. First, thank you so much for all that you have shared. I've never been an athlete, but am becoming one. That's awesome. I love to read that, that you have never been an athlete, but I am becoming one. You can all become athletes. It's a mindset. It's an approach. It's a conviction. And it's being vigilant with your training to become an athlete, to be an athlete. Doesn't have to mean. It doesn't mean results. It doesn't mean time. It doesn't mean body composition. It doesn't mean any of that. It's a mindset. Being an athlete is a mindset. I have. I've tried to follow what you've taught through Rich Roll and your podcast, but I'm confused about zone two training. Great. Do you measure it from max heart rate or from a lactic acid threshold? How far below my lactic acid threshold do I need to be to get the benefit? Okay, so let's answer that first part first. Um, max heart rate. You can take it from max heart rate. It's just um, I've found that getting yourself to determine max heart rate because you want to determine it. You don't want to use it on a formula. I don't like formulas. They are not individual to you enough. Formulas um, never seem to get you close enough to what you personally are capable of. And then you get frustrated, right? If you say age, 220 minus my age, and then a little bit here and there for fitness, and then you can't achieve that max heart rate, well, then you start thinking, well, what's the matter with me? Or, well, I should be here, and then you apply the zones to that. Or if you blow right through that and you have a way higher max heart rate, it just creates confusion onto what your engine is. So I would not take it from max heart rate formula, but if you are have a way of determining max heart rate, and like I said, um, I like the five by one mile test that I've talked about on the podcast. And the five by one mile test on the podcast, and this answers that part of the question, is basically determining your lactate threshold. And like I've said before, you take the the slowest, um, the lowest heart rate and the highest heart rate, you throw them out and you take the average of the remaining three of your best effort, five times one mile repeats with one minute rest. And that gets you pretty close to your LT, lactate threshold, AET in other, capital A, lowercase e, capital T, um, the other places use that description. So that gets you about the top end, top half of your zone four. And then from there, I work down um, in percentages of that or also based off of history of what I see the athlete doing and so forth. But, you know, you can pretty much go in 10 to 12 beat zones down from there. And that will give you, so 10 to 12 beats below that will give you a good 
space and range of zone three, and then another 10 to 12 beats below that gives you a good space and range of zone two. When I say 10 to 12 beats, that means that's the middle of the zone. Um, so that should answer, do you measure it from max heart rate? Yes, you could measure it from max heart rate. If you have a good way of determining max heart rate, a good place to start with your zone two is 70% of max heart rate, okay? LT, um, lactic acid threshold, is often, well, lactic acid threshold is a weird way, lactic threshold. Lactic acid threshold is often confused, so let's not use that wording. Um, from LT, it's usually 20% below that, but what I would do from LT is um, measure out, figuring that that's about 90% of max, and then I would go to max from that number, um, and then go backwards and figure out 70%. It just, it's a little bit more, it usually ends up being a very similar number, but again, it's just another way to validate backwards. Um, and it's, all these numbers are a starting point. This isn't laboratory tested, but it's a good place to start. And I do that for a lot of my athletes. It's very worthwhile. Um, how far below my lactic acid threshold do I need to get the benefit? So I explained that. Also, I've read and heard some say that Z2 training has limited benefits with low volumes of training. I train six to eight hours a week. I'm afraid it's all I have. I just listened to episode 58 where you suggest that I really need 18 to 20 hours a week in order to see the results. No, no, no I don't say that um, That you need that in order to see the results. It just takes you longer to see the results. Six to eight hours is what it is. That's what you have, limited training time. It depends on what you're getting ready for too, right? If you're getting ready for a 100-mile run on six to eight hours of training per week, that's going to take a lot of weeks to build up that type of fitness. Um, but that's actually the beauty of coaching, trying to make the limited hours work for the given athlete and trying to figure out, okay, how can we maximize those six to eight hours a week of work? Um, but I would never, ever, ever get away from the point that if the effort level that I am doing for my race, the intensity level, the heart rate level, the effort level is at, let's say, X. Therefore, I need to train below X for longer periods of time to be comfortable when I'm rested in order to maintain X. And then I spend a little bit time of time above X to also be comfortable with harder efforts, climbing hills or accelerations and so forth in order to be ready for X. Um, nothing changes whether you have six to eight hours or 18 to 20 hours. It's still relatively to the formula of, there it is, I just used formula. It's still relative to the hours you have available. If you have 18 to 20 hours available and you're getting ready for an event that's pretty long, you're still 80% of your time doing a lot of foundation and zone two work and 20% over. Um, if you have six to eight hours, I would still say that's, uh, you know, 80% of your time should be spent at that. And it's hard. It's hard because we have limited training time. So it feels like a waste of time. If I have eight hours a week to train and six and a half of those hours are at zone two, 
that's pretty, it's, it, it requires patience, but then you can spread those out in a different way. For example, do 45 minutes three times a week, right? Of different, and I would get my intensity and I would get that um, hour and a half of intensity in during the week. So let's say 45, 45, 45. So that puts us at um, two hours and 15 minutes during the week. Let's say Thursday, for, uh, one, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, do that type of work. Monday, we're recovering from the weekend. Friday, we're recovering for the weekend. So now we're two hours and 15 minutes into, let's say, a seven hour and 15 minute week. So now we have five hours to train on the weekend. So we can load that differently. We can do a three hour run or workout on a Saturday, a two hour run and a, or a workout similar on a Sunday. Now you just back to back to bigger days. And that's a that's a solid weekend. Three and two is a great weekend. And you did all that on seven hours and 15 minutes of training for the week. You got your higher intensity in, let's say on Tuesday and Wednesday or Wednesday and Thursday. You recovered properly. You're eating healthy. You're fueling healthy. You're hydrating. And then you get in those weekends. So there's there's many ways to skin this cat. But yes, you can get in the effects of the training. If that means those that three and two on the weekend, for example, that's your zone two time. Right? And maybe one of those 45-minute sessions during the week is zone two as well because you're recovering from the higher intensity of Tuesday and Thursday. So let's say maybe Wednesday is that zone two day. And then throw into that that zone, the, the upper echelon of that intensity work needs to be zone four, zone five, best effort stuff, right? Like we talked about earlier in this podcast. So let me see, with limited training time, would I do better to incorporate HIT, high intensity interval training? Yes, I just explained that. And other similar strategies in my 30 to 50 minute runs and save my Z2 for long runs. There you go, I just answered that. I'm happy to pay you for your time to advise me. I think I got it all, Brent. Um, You just heard me explain it all. So I hope that helps. And those are the questions like, go ahead, shoot them to me. Like, this is what we want to discuss on the podcast. And this grows into other things on the podcast. And what I love to share, demystify all this. It's not this endurance stuff and this being healthy and balanced stuff doesn't have to be this super secret, highly educated brain surgery. It's just a question of how do we skin that cat, for lack of a better description. I keep busting on cats. I own two dogs. so. Um, but yeah, so let's just figure out how, how it can work. We can use case studies on here. That's what these podcasts are for. Just It's fun that way, and that way all of you can pull a tidbit out of it. So I hope that helps. Those two emails. Two questions that always come up with regards to swimming are one, why do we do so much interval quality, um, intricate work in the pool, whereas on the bike and the run, we just sort of bike and run. So that's one thing. Um, And then the second question is how to translate swim workouts from the pool to open water. So I'll start with the latter um, because that's an easier, quicker answer. One, Moving from the pool to open water, what I often tell my athletes is 
do the designated time of the workout. If the swim workout was one hour and 10 minutes, one hour and 20 minutes, do that time in open water. But of course, don't try to look to do sets, intervals, drills, and so forth in open water. Open water is a great time to just settle into steady swimming and allow the fatigue of a longer, steadier, nonstop, no streamlines, no flip turns, no stopping to settle in. Um, what you'll find in open water is that the challenge of time perspective quickly creeps up on you. And so you might feel you've been swimming for 20 minutes and then you stop, you look at your watch and you realize you've been swimming for seven minutes. So that gradually gets better over time. The more you swim in open water, the more you swim without a clock, you get a better sense of how long and how far and your pace and your swimming distance and so forth. So I think, again, that's a question of practice and getting the mind used to being its own timekeeper versus so many of us using clocks on the wall. Now, those of you that use a wristwatch in the pool, that's a whole different story and conversation. We're not going to go into that today, but um, you should not be stopping while you're swimming in open water constantly to look at how far you've gone or how long you've gone. So in order to build up that tolerance, I would say I tell a lot of my athletes, why don't you start with three times 20 minutes, um, maybe take a minute or two rest between each 20 minute interval and just gradually build up your tolerance and your time and your um, spacious, not spacious, using the darkness of staring into nothing um, to expand your mind with regards to sensing distance and time. Um, and, and then anything beyond that three times 20 minutes is just a warm down, splash down, whatever you want to call it. Gradually, you work your way up to two times 30 minutes. Um, sometimes then we'll go 40 minutes and then a short break and then 20 minutes faster. Um, a lot of times in lake swimming, I like to have athletes go out easy and come back negative split which means they get to a certain point that they turn around and they swim back to the start where they started from and that segment should be faster. Not easy to do in open water because again, that fatigue and different setting of the sun or rise of the sun so that sometimes your conditions and your situation is different. Um, wind, chop, things like that also can play a, in, an effect. Important in open water, and what I always recommend is if you're going to swim in a lake or any body of water with boats, get it done very early in the morning. Um, the beauty of summer and the beauty of wetsuits is that you can swim basically at 6 a.m. when only the fishing boats are out there and they like a calm lake and a quiet lake, so you won't be doing much to disturb them. But once the water skiers are out, who also like a calm lake, by the way, but um, usually are not up that early and hug the shore and do what you need to do to get your swim work in. The first question was about why all the intricacies and detail and intervals in swimming. Well, like I say to most of my athletes, most of us don't know how to swim very well. We weren't swimmers, um, but most of us know how to run not necessarily well by, let's say, world-class standards, but we know how to run. Um, and most of us know how to ride a bike. And in both those cases, doing more running and biking will bring along a lot of efficiencies 
and adjustments and course corrections, for lack of a better description, as you're doing it. You'll notice if your bike fits wrong on the bike, the more miles you do and where the uncomfort factor comes from. You'll notice what the hinge or hiccup in your running stride is the more miles you do and where the aches and pains and niggles are, and we can make adjustments from there. We make we do speed changes in cycling and running as well as in swimming, but not much of with regards to drills and time like that. The best use of our time on the bike and the run is to actually just bike and do some intervals and heart rate and wattage work. In the pool, many people just don't feel the water or aren't able to swim effectively. So drilling, left arm only, right arm only, catch-up swim, kicking, pulling is all critical in order to make you a better swimmer. These are parts that you can, while in less gravity, which swimming is, and swimming through water, through a fluid, it allows you to highlight a part of your stroke, where you're sinking, how you're breathing, what your power part of your pull is, where there's no power at all, and there shouldn't be a dead spot like that. We kick in order to get that ankle flexibility and motion going, not because I want you kicking strong in a, in a triathlon or an open water swim, because uh, on the one hand, we do need to kick, but not nothing as strong as with just the kickboard. I want you pulling paddles and pull buoy help you use bigger, bigger muscle groups, as well as if you're slipping with your hand through the water, it will be highlighted and clarified and more noticeable when you're using hand paddles. Um, left arm only lets you focus on a single arm. Catch up lets you focus on allowing one hand to pull effectively through the stroke to gradually push you forward with that one arm sitting out front. And as that other arm pulls through, it's pushing that up front arm ever so gradually through the water with a little um, boost. And then that other arm catches up to that hand up front and then the next arm pulls. And it's supposed to highlight how there's these spots in your stroke that push you forward. And if you move away from catch up ever so gradually, that push forward, that boost should be less and less and the speed should remain the same. It also highlights if one arm is forward and one arm is pulling and you're not kicking at all how the back half of your body just sinks and creates an anchor. You know, kicking or fins highlights how important ankle flexibility is and how powerful that kick can be and what big muscle groups it uses and oxygen it uses. Um, kicking also shows you that if your toes are pointed down to the bottom of the pool, you will not go anywhere. Even a world-class swimmer, if their ankles are at 90 degrees with their shins or their feet are at 90 degrees with their shins, hence toes pointing down, heels coming out of the water, they're not going to go anywhere. They will kick in place, right? So, so many with lack of ankle flexibility, the ability to point their toes to the other end of the pool from which they're swimming from and flutter up and down with a flat foot, 
not of toes pointing down to the bottom of the pool, sort of like fins do and why fins are so much faster because they create a wider surface area that you are snapping your feet down on and highlight that you actually want the top of your feet to be the down snap on your regular freestyle kick where it's the widest part of your foot being that top of your foot when it's facing down to the bottom of the pool, that flat part really displacing water. That's the whole point. You can work from your hips. You can work from your knees. You can use calf muscles, all those things while you're kicking. But if the flat part of your foot is not going up and down displacing water, you're not getting anywhere. So we do a lot of drills and swimming in order to highlight exactly that, to work on the things that many people just don't know how to do and therefore, we spend time in the pool doing it. It is a great uh, sport to do that creates fatigue but doesn't have the wear and tear on the body. Do we need to swim an hour and 20, an hour and a half a, um, a, a day for three, four days a week? No, that's more swimming that's really necessary in triathlon. But again, it creates volume fatigue for you, and it creates efficiencies and economy of motion that you will then need when you're swimming steady, i.e. open water. So that's usually the reasoning behind it. And as you progress as runners, you will do more track work, more drills, more speed work, more bounding, more toes, more barefoot grass running, more stretching, more things like that so that you, again, include more specifics and drills and strengthening and coordination and movements and efficiencies in your running in order to then make you a better runner. But in most cases, that 80-20 rule 80% of your time should be spent on getting more efficient, economical, and aerobically fit. Looking for that last 20% to get technically perfectly sound or stronger or better, stronger calf muscles or bounding or bounce or jump off speed is not going to be the most effective use of what is already very limited time. I think I've created a fear in going too hard for many of my athletes. Because of a lot of the training that we do is so controlled and we're smart about staying in the middle of our zone for maximum benefits and adaptation. It's interesting that when I have them test, especially on tests where I need them to go almost best effort, blow themselves up, they quite often, um, don't want to go as hard as they should can because they want to measure the remainder of the workout output intervals and so forth. What I mean by that is that, for example, my five, one, five times one mile test that I have a lot of athletes do every, you know, two to three months just to continue to adjust their zones and for them to show, to see how they're getting faster, fitter, stronger, and so forth. Um, and this, again, despite doing no speed work, they're getting faster, fitter, stronger, and so forth. And a lot of them have this confusion in there because everything else that we do is so controlled. And so let's say the five one-milers, they start the first mile going quite hard, but still in a way that they know that they have four more to go. 
And this is actually a mental exercise that's quite important for all athletes and why I bring it up on this podcast. Your ability to push beyond what your brain is telling you and not that central governor, not quite that deep, but going beyond what your voices inside your head are telling you with saying, you have four more, this already hurts, this is a strong enough effort, keep in mind the pain that is yet to come is the one you want to overcome, right? Your ability to switch that off and not project out future pain, anxiety equals future, right? Um, Therefore, being able to push properly. If I see a five times one mile test, and by the way, this is the same for the cycling test that I do 10 minute um, all out intervals or 20 minute all out climbs and stuff like that. Um, If I see those and the heart rate rises and the effort or the, the pace dramatically increases two, three, four, and five, or it's a continuous linear progression, I know they didn't start hard enough. If their highest heart rate max effort, fastest effort of is early, it's a great start. And that's the whole point. If you blow up at mile three or at mile four, that means that data is very, very valuable. Then we can see what you do on the fifth mile or on the fourth mile when you have blown up. It's all data. It's all insight. It's all value. It's all something we can work with. So that being said, the lesson here and why I bring it up is all of you, whether you're coached by me or not, or working with your coaches, keep in mind that the blowing up and pushing yourself beyond the narrative of what the future pain might be is exactly the point. You want to be able to push yourself through that boundary. Because when you do an Olympic distance or even on the back end of a 70.3 and even on the back end of an Ironman or an ultra distance run or, you know, any other type of event where as you're closing into the finish, or you want to push yourself beyond where you currently are, you're gonna have to overcome that narrative. That's the same thing in a 100 mile run. Because the distance is so far and there's still so many hours of, not pain, but you know, constant load and fatigue ahead of you, our natural, subconscious way is already holding us back and not in a negative way. It's being smart. It's almost pacing you. You know, very rarely do you see somebody who's a beginner 100 miler (laughs) start off too fast, sprinting, running too hard, right? Now, what we perceive as too easy might still not be easy enough. And that's a different conversation. But the five times one mile repeat, or as we get bigger in workouts and so forth, your ability to not project out what is still to come and instead do your best in this interval, in this workout, in this moment is the key. And that applies to all intervals in all training, but it especially applies to some of the threshold VO2 max efforts that we do. Um, as we project, as we um, not project, as we go through the season, 
my athletes begin to get more and more best effort pieces. And some of those can get quite long, 10 to 15 minutes, 15 minutes of best effort. But again, it's preparing them not only physically, you have a great stimulus from it, but mentally, it's such a strong stimulus. The knowledge of I'm pushing and right when I see myself, feel myself, observe myself, settling in, getting comfortable, I push harder. I want to get uncomfortable again. I want to stay uncomfortable. I want to continue to say to myself, I'm not sure I can do this, but I'm going to do this now until I can't do it no longer. Right? And that tolerance and that ability will go up, right? Because not because of your muscular strength all of a sudden or your fitness. It's your brain. You're just getting your brain wrapped around how hard hard is. Not physically. Physically, we're all capable of going incredibly hard right this moment, right? It's not a question of fitness. It's just a question of how hard you push. And that's a you know central governor conversation. That's a familiarity with that pain conversation. All that is a mental aspect. Familiarity with pain and pushing that hard is purely mental, right? As creatures of nature, as animals that we are technically, there's nothing telling us that we can't go out and sprint all out right now. Right this very second. Our muscles are physically capable to do that. Our body is physically capable to do that motion. So from that perspective, it's basically our head. And are we prepared for it? And will I cramp? Am I hydrated? Am I fueled? All that stuff. Use the training to balance that narrative and get better in self-talk and your ability to push through. All right. All right. Let's dive into one last email. Um, and I'm sorry, this is an email heavy podcast, but I figure I get through a bunch of these questions and insights and um, inquiries. And that way we can sort of work through some of the things that many of you might have questions about. So um, this one's a pretty long email, but I will try to jump into the key parts. The biggest issue I have had racing in recent years has been hamstring cramps, which seems to occur when I, as I get deeper into Ironmans or marathons. I realize that cramping may have many causes, and in, many, and in my case, I tend to believe that it is at least partially a result of asking my body to do in a race what I never ask to do it in training. This comes back to Z2 training. Late in an endurance race, I'm performing at higher than Z2. Prior to that, um, this person wrote, for many years I've trained primarily in zone two with a small amount of higher intensity as the race gets closer. I will race shorter races just to incorporate some intensity. I do wonder how much aerobic ability I can get out of my body. I do seem to have a solid aerobic base. However, it does not seem to be expanding. So um, there's a caveat with regards to this athlete being older, but I wanted to address it in a more general sense. And so... Absolutely, there is a point where too much zone two training is going to have limited benefits. And that often happens within a season. 
if you get in a fair amount of miles and volume and hours at zone two with a little bit of tempo and zone four and zone five and VO2 max sprinkled in, there will be a time where your body can only absorb so much in one season to have maximum gains with the limited time we have to train because we all went pro in something other than triathlon. But that being said, A, that's different for everybody. And two, um, we need a significant platform of zone two to even know that this is the case. So my initial response here would be, um, one, how did you determine zone two? If it's just a feeling or if it's just a vague guess, then that zone two will run out of benefits, absolutely, nor will the training effect be there based off of how you're racing. Um, and where you get the cramping and the fatigue. So that's one thing. Number two, my quick response would be, we're not spending all our time at zone two. As we get closer to the race, we shouldn't necessarily be shorter races. They help raise the intensity as a training day. But we also want to do longer simulations where we are applying the wattages and the paces and the heart rates we will be seeing in races. So, um, what I would think there that here something is missing, and that is long simulation days. Um, I have all my athletes, and I would recommend it for everybody to always go through some longer simulation days. You can't do them every week, but every two, three weeks, as you're getting closer to the A event, you want simulation days, long training days where you're not only switching up the intensity so for example an easy longer bike let's say 80 to 90 to 100 miles and then a focused goal pace run of you know 6 to 12 to 13 miles off the bike yeah that long of a day to test if you can hold the paces your gold paces your desired paces for race day how your body's responding how you come back the next day and so forth so that's definitely something to keep in mind here um, the other thing is zone two, again, as we go into further into the season, we need to increase the time above zone two at VO2 max to raise the floor. But that, we usually see that in athletes that are pr pretty um, advanced with regards to their zone two and what they're, and the miles that they've done and the work that they've put in. We usually have two or three tests for that season, let's say January, April, and then late July, and we see it's leveling off and so therefore from that we can sort of start saying all right we need to raise the ceiling in order to bring up the floor and it'll drag along zone two a little bit um, not much it's not enough to, to use that training approach for your full season approach because if you try to bring up the floor it's basically squeezing out the last um five-ish percent that you can get out of your season in strength gains by fitness, right? There's specificity you can still gain. You can still gain um, better execution in the races and so forth. But when it comes to a true fitness gain in one season as measured in a lab, um, yes, there are definitely times and um, limits to how much you can improve. Now, then you take some time off and then we recalibrate the system for to become stronger for the next season. And that includes extra zone two time. Um, so I think I answered that. 
Um, also, regarding the cramping, we've talked about this before. Remember, cramping is in many cases, most cases, muscle fatigue. Now, the body will not allow that muscle to expand and contract properly, and therefore, electrolytes, we seem to think, help, but it's more about um, the the muscle being fatigued enough that now it wants to stay in a contracted state um, or seize up because it's not able to relax, expand, and fire properly um, because it's tired. It's um, the lactic accumulation as well as a variety of other factors play into this. Um, So the other thing I would ask there is if the hamstring and there's issues there, that means what are the longer runs off the bike? Are they at that pace? So your body should recognize race pace because, again, at an, an Ironman training, if we take, if we go back to the coaching syllabus of Ironman training, we want to think of it this way. If I'm getting ready for a marathon on the back end of a 112-mile bike, that marathon pace is quite manageable as a standalone in my training. So, for example, if you want to run nine-minute miles in the race, so let's say about a four-hour marathon, off the 112-mile bike in the swim. Well, you know, running nine-minute miles um, fresh with no swim or bike prior to it should not be the difficulty. You should be able to run eights quite comfortably, quite manageably for many miles, 12 to 16 to 18-mile prep runs um, in your training. Um, So you should be running faster than that at zone two. It should not be that taxing. Um, Your zone two time should be coming down. So that's part of pieces that are missing here. Um, So I wouldn't choose a pace and an output at a race that I wouldn't be familiar with from my training. So for example, with my own training currently, I have Canada in uh, six or seven weeks. So currently running off the bike, off of a long bike, my fitness isn't what it used to be with regards to swim, bike, run. Now my running fitness is good enough to go slow all day because I was running 100Ks and so forth. But my speed, my leg turnover, my posture isn't as efficient at the higher speeds of let's say what used to be 650s and um, 645s. to you know seven tens now currently i'm probably more in the 730 range so if in my training i'm running 730s off of a long bike and i'll go into simulations with those numbers approximately now if i see i can in simulations hold that easily i'll probably set my expectations a little bit faster for ironman than 730s if i see i can't hold it in simulation properly and those times aren't improving at lower heart rate numbers over the next few weeks well then 730s is my pace that is what it is it's the leg turnover and it's the feel of what i would call call go all day pace i just have to accept that i if if i wanted to improve that I would need to do my run work in a different way. But I've chosen not to do my run work in a different way for this Ironman buildup because I know I've run fitness. I need to focus more on my cycling, which has not been there for many, many months. So it's just a question of where I'm putting my time and resources and focus to. Um, 
So yeah, so that's how you want to think of it with regards to zone two in this. Now, in this case, the person is writing this is 68, and they also had some heart stuff going on. But um, I know age can be a factor, and I shouldn't expect better or, you know, but there's still plenty of good performance in there. Um, 68 is a number, but can you still race and train effectively? Yes. Do you need to add more intensity as you get older? Yes. Do you need to reduce volume slightly? Yes. And I would usually go in like a 10% increment. And that what I mean by there is in your 50s, you probably want to reduce your volume overall by about 10% um, of what you used to do. And then increase your intensity, not by 10%, but just increase the amount of intensity workouts, sessions you're doing ever so gradually um, at that point. And then another decade, I would reduce it by another 10%. So if on average in your 30s and 40s, you train 16 hours a week, let's say, for getting ready for your typical events, whether that's a 50 miler or an Ironman or whatever that is, by dialing it back approximately 10%, you got to see what works for you, what you're absorbing and so forth. But 10% is a healthy number to be smart about and make the proper observations. So now you're talking, you're only training about 14 and a half average hours per week. Then another decade <laughs> later, you're another 10% below that. So now you're only at like 13 hours, 12 to 13 hours per week. So but in, in, in those hours, you want to increase the, the, the workouts that you have intense, intensity at that. Intensity to me is zone four or above, um, where you're really working hard, shorter intervals. Um, intensity to me is not zone three, long 40, 30, 40, 50, 60 minute intervals. That's um, on the one hand, I call it tempo, but that's also just steady state work, which is rarely going to be needed unless we have a huge aerobic platform. I mean, we're talking Z2 miles that are quite big for what average people do. Um, the other question is, uh, with regards to, ah, okay, well, I apologize for being so, I would like to continue to train and race, reluctant to put in the effort for Ironman training because I fear the cramp again and will struggle to finish the run. Yes, it's a question of run volume there. Real simple, um, and how you're running off the bike. And also probably in this case, cramping is a very individual thing with regards to fueling and nutrition. Again, asking the body to pull from its resources when the fitness is not there or it's not been fueled or hydrated properly. That's something that's key to look into. So um, I think I answered almost everything right there. So I hope that helps Steve in this case. Um, if not, send me another email. We can try to work through it um, offline. But I think the main gist here is to keep in mind simulations bring that heart rate up and put you into a state of um, being able to prepare the body for the rigors of the long day at higher wattages and heart rates. Two, that zone two fitness does plateau and you need to change your training input then in order to raise the floor. Three, look into hydration, nutrition, and your training regimen that you are hitting a fitness wall at this point. Um, and then 
four, maybe see what your goal pace is and how that relates to if you're maybe running too fast or setting those expectations too fast, starting too quickly when you're running off the bike. Um, so I think that will help dramatically. Lastly, um, the zone two thing is actually something I wanted to follow up on. What I don't like there is that we don't race Ironman at zone two. That's something um, just because we train at zone two does not mean we race at zone two. We've talked about it a little bit and we've danced around the topic over the last two, uh, two or three podcasts. But what you race at is definitely not zone two. Now, over distances that are super long, it tends to average out and balance out to lower heart rates because you're walking and hiking and stopping and so forth that the overall tax on the body. But for an Ironman, for example, you should not be racing in zone two. Um, and run off the bike is very rarely a heart rate number um, with regards to our training zones. Because as I've said before, that this type of uh, length of race and usually in the conditions means that that number is completely haywire. Um, it's not accurate as to what your zones are on a cool training day topped off and fluids and or in a, a lab or in an environment of a shorter workout. Um, so let me break that down properly. One, uh, zone two is for training. We race Ironmans often low zone three, lower half of zone three. Um, so typical um, exercise physiology and sports physiology will talk about how we race um, at a threshold, at a number, and we typically want to train um, the majority of our time just under that number and a limited but effective amount of time always above that number. That's sort of the zone two, zone four discussion. Um, so that's one piece. Two, um, what happens after the bike is your level of dehydration, your level of fatigue, your level of just overall exhaustion, not from a fatigue standpoint, but just being out there exercising that long. Temperature, environment, conditions, so forth, go haywire on your heart rate. So you might be seeing numbers that are completely different than what you usually see in training. Again, you're further into your day, more things can go wrong and are affecting your heart rate. Um, so what I often do is I try to settle in and have my athletes settle into a similar heart rate that they rode on the bike because the body, again, likes to sit in homeostasis, steady state, and the heart will quickly want to get back to where it was effectively pumping for the last five, six hours. And so, sure, we're running, but I just want to keep pumping at that rate. That seemed to be just right. That's how you want to think your heart's working. That's the signals in the body saying, I'd like to stay just here. I got efficient at that. I got uh, used to this pump factor, this frequency, this delivering oxygen and blood to the working muscles and so forth. I'd like to stay at this heart rate. Um, so that being a zone two number of also, please know, because that means it's probably falling too low. So I would wonder also in this question, why we're um, racing and seeing zone two numbers during that. That's going to be a slow day. 
Now you might say, well, why are you able to race at zone three if you only train at zone two? We've talked about this before too with regards to fresher, um, rested. Our heart rate is way more responsive. It's willing to give you a lot more. And therefore, when it's fresher and more responsive, it is able to stay in the lower half of zone three um, in a healthy manner for a long, long time. It's not fatigued. It's not taxed. And it feels on the body on, in a fresh state like what zone two, middle of zone two, would usually feel like in a tired state. So it's the same um, stress on the body. And that's why we can race at low zone three for most of the bike ride. Then the run, you all know my strategy for most is see where the heart rate settles, give it plus three or five beats on the low side, three to five beats on the high side, and stay within that six to 10 beat range for the rest of the run. Go much above that, you're going too hard. Go much below that, you're seeing cardiac drift. That means fuel or calories are starting to really impact you or leg turnover and so forth. So you need to factor in those three or four things. So that should really answer all of it too. All right, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We went to a lot of little details there and technical inputs and training inputs that I hope all of you got something out of. And as we go into episode 75, I will say there will be a lot more contemplative balance mindset um, and sort of strategy coming up in the next episodes, mainly because I've had a lot of time on the bike this week and been listening to books and thinking and had a great opportunity to talk to some people as well with regards to life and how we can balance all this training, life with regards to how we can make all the pieces of the three-legged stool work um, better, optimize it, not perfectly, but of course, optimize it in the current moment. And also life with regards to not being in a hurry on how we're going to achieve our endurance and ultra endurance goals and adventures and bigger picture plans we have for ourselves. And the important thing there is staying healthy and continuing to progress. One of my athletes got this quote from me this week, and that is, and it, I feel it's powerful and it's a good reminder, and that is what we should be doing is comparing ourselves only to ourselves and ourselves meaning yesterday's self and today being our better version of our yesterday self. And when we compare ourselves to others today, we're losing and we're not having the best outcome. So compare yourself only to yourself, to yesterday's version of yourself, how you're better today than you were yesterday, whether in fitness, whether overall, just in how you perceive yourself ever so gently, ever so small improvements. But when we improve, when we compare ourselves and look at others today on a continuum with ourselves today, it's hard because comparing is always difficult. 
and looking at others and how they're leading their lives and what they're successful in and the results they're having or how they're training or the hours that they're able to achieve or the things they're able to do or the bike they're able to buy or the the resources that they have with regards to coaching, training, hours, and so forth, travel, races, um, adventures. It's a very difficult game to play. And as we progress on long-term goals, we want to keep that in mind. We're just trying to be a better version of ourselves day after day after day. So good luck with that. <laughs> um, as you can tell, I've been on long bike rides and there's a lot coming towards that i've been making a lot of notes and journaling and putting a lot of information into uh written form so that i can recall a lot of this in a discussion next week all right everybody have a great week stay healthy stay progressing um, stay balanced um, keep in mind how lucky we are um, to be doing what we're doing and how we're connected to ourselves and we have the opportunity and the wherewithal and the awareness to actually look into ourselves and listen to ourselves and spend time with ourselves like so many of you do in your training and how I'm such a big proponent of that. And there's a lot of gratitude in that and that we're able to understand that that extra time every day just makes us better people. So have a great week and I will talk to you next week.